Our New Testament reading this evening comes from Acts 2, verses 14 to 36. That's Acts 2, verses 14 to 36. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The Old Testament reading this evening comes from Psalm 16. A miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land... They are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. 
their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever heard the story of the goose that laid the golden egg? Have you heard the story? The story goes that there's this farmer, this poor farmer, but one day he acquires this goose. And this goose has an extraordinary property. Every day it lays a solid gold egg. Now, of course, that's good news for the farmer. And initially he's happy with his newfound income. However, over time he becomes greedy and impatient. He says, why should I wait to get one golden egg a day when I could just cut the goose open and get all of the eggs at once? And so he goes and he cuts the goose open, but what does he find? No more eggs inside, and now that he's killed the goose, he's not going to get any more golden eggs in the future. What did this farmer not understand? Well, he wanted these good things, but he didn't understand how he was getting them. He didn't realize that he was dependent on the goose to get the golden eggs. He was so focused on the eggs themselves that he missed the fact that it was the goose who made the eggs who was really valuable. Well, in this passage, David wants to teach us a similar lesson. Uh, He wants us to learn that the good things we can have in this life are empty unless we also have the one who gives them to us, God. He wants us not to get so caught up with God's good gifts that we miss out on a relationship with God himself. Now, as I mentioned in previous sermons, this group of seven psalms, Psalms 11 through 17 that we've been going through, they all unpack elements of Psalms 9 through 10. Uh, These seven psalms are especially focused on our hearts, what's going on inside us. Uh, And in this psalm, the connection to Psalms 9 and 10 uh, is primarily by way of contrast. If you remember, in Psalms 9 and 10, we hear a lot about what's going on inside the heart of a fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. He also says in his heart that God has forgotten. God doesn't see the things I'm doing. The fool ignores, downplays, and forgets God. But in this psalm, we get to see what goes on in the heart of the righteous, in contrast to that. That the righteous continually rejoice in God and focus their hearts on him. In other words, beyond all the good things that the heart of the righteous may treasure, God is the ultimate good for his heart. First and foremost, God is his good. So as we look through this psalm, I want us to see three points. 
First, because God is David's good, David has no other God. Because God is David's good, David has no other God. Second, because God is David's good, David worships God with his whole being. Because God is David's good, David worships God with his whole being. And third, because God is David's good, David does not fear the grave. Because God is David's good, David does not fear the grave. So, point number one. Since God is David's good, he has no other God. David says right at the beginning of this psalm, You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. He acknowledges that God isn't just a Lord. He isn't even just the Lord. For David, God is my Lord. This God is the God that is his God, the one whom he worships, who he has pledged his loyalty to. And then he goes on to say that he has no good apart from God. He has no good beyond God, or perhaps no good on top of God. David isn't just saying that God is the best thing in the universe. He's saying that apart from God, there is no good in the universe. What's, what's the difference between those two things? Well, um, just because something is the best thing uh, doesn't mean it's the only thing you need. Think of your favorite meal. I, I know that Cyril asked you about your favorite meal this morning. I promise you I'm not ripping them off. This was in my sermon manuscript. But, but you know, think of your favorite meal. You know, what is it? Maybe it's a prime steak or a chicken alfredo or um, a curry with the spices just right. Um, I'll tell you what it is for me. It's uh, got to be a carne asada burrito made the way that they make them in San Diego. Now, that's what it's got to be for me. But no matter how good that meal is, you wouldn't want to have it every night, would you? I mean, maybe you think you'd want to. Kids, how would you like it if you got to have ice cream for every meal? Does, does, does that sound like fun? Does that sound good? I mean, maybe that sounds like fun, but I think if you actually did it, you'd find out that you got sick of ice cream if you had it every single day. You see, even the best things in this world are just part of a balanced diet. To have a full and happy life, you need lots of different good things, and each one kind of fits into its own time and place. But that isn't how David talks about God. Uh, he doesn't talk about God as just one of the best things among a number of good things that we can have. Instead, he says that there are no good things apart from God. Uh, without God, none of the other good things is really good anymore. Uh, they become empty. They lose their value. And of course, David isn't saying that we should despise these other good things. He's not saying that they're not really good. In fact, David is often quite bold in asking God for these things, isn't he? He asks God to provide health and life and deliverance from his enemies. After all, in the Old Testament, God's favor is often experienced in a very physical way, through physical gifts like the promise of the land and an inheritance and children and a long life. But David doesn't allow himself to become so captivated by these good gifts that he misses the giver of these good gifts. In fact, uh, we can actually see he goes through some of these gifts in verses 5 to 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. 
Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So yes, God has given David a beautiful inheritance, a wonderful plot of land, but David starts by saying that God is David's inheritance. Yes, God has filled David's cup, but David starts by saying that God is that cup. In other words, David celebrates these good gifts for the ways in which they point beyond themselves. The limited, finite goodness of an inheritance or a cup are pictures and expressions of God's infinite goodness. All the goodness we find around us in this world is contained in a higher, perfect, and ultimate way in God himself. Uh, The things that he gives us in this world are tangible expressions of his love and care. It's like an engagement ring. Think about an engagement ring. Is the value of an engagement ring just in the carrot of the diamonds? Or, or the value it would fetch on the free markets? Well, I certainly hope not. That would, wouldn't be a good sign, right? If, if, you know, if somebody who just got engaged only cared about the engagement ring for its purely financial value. Um, rather, it's the relationship that matters most. That's what gives such great value to the ring. Likewise, God is the ultimate and original good. He is goodness itself. And all these other good things in the world, they only count as good things insofar as they reflect and reveal him. It was easy for God's people to forget that fact, though, wasn't it? Perhaps you remember Deuteronomy 31.20, where God predicts, When I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenants. Good and pleasurable things are not bad in themselves, but when we get obsessed with them, when we rest content in them without looking beyond them to the God who gives them, then they become become spiritually dangerous and lead us into worshiping other gods. So, so where, do the, where do the other gods fit in? Well, if you have no good apart from God, then you won't have any other gods either. David talks about this in verses 3 to 4. Now, at this point, I have to admit, something preachers sometimes have to admit, which is that verse 3 through 4 are somewhat difficult. In the Hebrew, there's a couple different options for how you could translate them. Um, First, these verses could describe two contrasting groups. That's how the ESV translates it. On the one hand, you have a group of saints in whom God delights, and then over here you have a group that goes after other gods and multiplies pains because of it. It's also possible, though, in trying to understand the grammar of the verse, to see it is just one group throughout. Uh, So it might mean something like, even the holy ones in the land whom God delights in have now gone after other gods and have multiplied pains. Uh, if you read it that way, it uh, might be something like Psalm 12:2, you know, where David uh, uh, David uh, laments the fact that the faithful and righteous have seemed to disappear from the land. Those people who seemed like they were faithful have turned out to become idolaters. Either way, though, whichever way you read the two verses, the main point is clear: worshiping idols is being condemned. Uh, The word for sorrows in verse 4, about the sorrows that are multiplied, actually is a wordplay. It sounds kind of like a Hebrew word for idols. Uh, The point of that being, more idols, more problems. 
Idols are going to lead you in to misery. Uh, and in the next clause, well, the meaning of the verb is a little difficult. These are, these are very difficult verses. It could be maybe they hurry after another, or maybe they acquire another, or even they betroth another with that analogy of faithfulness to God being like a marriage, and so uh, worshiping other gods is like committing adultery. But whatever precisely the verb means, again, the overall meaning is clear. These people are choosing to worship another god from the god to whom they've been wedded as a people. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, says David. David expresses his determination not to join with this idolatrous worship in these sacrificial offerings. Um, Perhaps you remember that when the animal is brought to the priest to sacrifice in the tabernacle, its blood is poured out on the ground at the base of the altar as a reminder that all life belongs to God. Well, David refuses to offer this tribute to any other god. Furthermore, only the Lord's name will be on his lips, not the names of these other gods. Since David has no good apart from God, he has no other gods either. So what about, what about you this evening? Can you say that you have no good apart from God? That you see every good thing in your life as a gift. That, that all the good things you have are pointers for you that bring you back to God in gratitude and thanksgiving. Or are you allowing the good things in your life to distract you and lead you away from God? Now, we might not, have, we might not make little idols anymore, right? Um, Maybe polytheism isn't particularly popular in your context. Perhaps you're thinking, boy, I I can't remember the last time I poured out a blood offering um, or that I was tempted to worship Baal or Zeus or any of that. But if we're honest, our, our relationship to the good things in our lives is actually often very similar to these Israelites who are tempted by these idols. Uh, after all, idolatry isn't just the very little, literal making of little idols, but Paul expands the definition in Romans 1 when he calls it worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. In other words, at its core, idolatry happens whenever we take something created and put it in the place of God. And the insidious thing about idolatry is that it happens with good things, things that are innocent and pure in themselves. You can be a good person, have a strong marriage, love your kids, hold down a stable job, eat healthy, work out, not drink excessively, not do drugs, and still be a hopeless idolater. And what's the problem with chasing these things? I mean, they're good things, right? Those are all good things. You're not breaking the law if you do any of these things. And yet, if we immerse ourselves in those things, if they become what we live for, if we let these good things dull and anesthetize our spiritual senses and our desire for God, then these good things will imperil our very souls. They become bad for us. Not because of what they are in themselves, but because of how we use them. Let me ask you this evening. What are the good things in your life that are tempting you away from God right now? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe something is finally working out for you romantically. Or um, you're finally are making some close friendships. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe your child made the honor roll at school and you just can't wait to get home to slap that sticker on the back of your minivan. 
could be your career. Uh, maybe you're succeeding academically or succeeding at work. It's a difficult thing, isn't it? Because I don't want to stand here and tell you, uh, don't adore your spouse. Don't celebrate your children. Uh, don't enjoy the fruit of hard work. I don't want to tell you any of those things. These are good things. Uh, God wants us to enjoy them. But the question to ask yourself is, do I find God in all of these things? Do I see them as gifts? Do I see God's fingerprints all over them and turn back to him in thanksgiving and praise? Um, Or are they distracting me from God? Well, if that's you tonight, what should you do about it? Uh, I think sometimes... Uh, we think the solution is to enjoy these things less. Like maybe we need to just turn down the volume on our desires, and that's what righteousness would look like. And in part, I think that can be a helpful picture, because we do often have excessive, immoderate desires for things. But in itself, it's an incomplete picture. In fact, there's a sense in which we might actually need to enjoy these things more, and might do so if we put them in the context of God's. Maybe the problem is we aren't enjoying them enough. There's something so small and paltry about just stopping with this good thing itself and going no further. Think of the engagement ring example again. I think we can all see that there's something really twisted and pathological about somebody who only cares for the ring just insofar as it's a diamond ring, who's just obsessed with how beautiful uh, the gem is, but isn't at all interested in the person who gave the ring. And the value the ring has is a sign of that person's love. Now, does that take away from the beauty of the ring and the enjoyment of the ring if it's looked at in the light of another person's love? No, it's quite the opposite. Wouldn't we say that the person who thinks of it as just a ring has a very small and stilted and cut off enjoyment of the ring? Since for them, it's just a thing rather than being the sign of a love that they share with another human being. Well, that's how it is with the good things that God gives us. If they're just things for us, then we miss the opportunity to receive them as signs of the deep love and care that the eternal creator of the universe holds for us. It makes them mean so much less. We miss so much enjoyment we could have from them. We miss the way in which these things can open a door for wonder and praise. We miss the opportunity for a relationship more significant than any other we could have. So as you consider the ways in which you're tempted by good things this evening, uh, as you consider the things that may distract you from God, don't just try to back away from those things to turn down the volume on your emotions or enjoy them less. Instead, pray that God would open your eyes to see them as signs of his love. Pray that your love for these things would drive you to prayer and to praise. And pray that you'd enjoy these things more by enjoying them in relationship with God. Okay, so so that's the first point. Since God is our good, we should have no other gods. Now for the second point. Since God is David's good, David rejoices in God with his whole being. Uh, We learn about David's internal dialogue as it's recorded for us in verses 7 through 9. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. 
Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Uh, one thing that I, I pointed out that we notice in Psalms 11 through 17 is that these Psalms come back a lot to this theme of what you say inside yourself. Right? We saw that with the fool saying there is no God. Um, but now we hear what David has to say. What David's whole body is saying is striking. In verse 7, we hear about David's heart instructing him. Or maybe if you look down at your little footnote in the ESV, you'll see that in the Hebrew here, it's really David's kidneys. David's kidneys that are instructing him. I I don't know how much you've learned from your kidneys. But, of course, here in Hebrew, the kidneys are thought of, you know, and generally the guts down here is the seat of emotion. It's David's emotions that are instructing him. Uh, then in verse, uh, in verse 9, we have the regular word for heart, this, this one right here, um, which has more of a sense of mind in Hebrew. So for us, you know, our mind is up here and maybe our emotions are here, whereas for the Hebrews, your mind is here and your emotions are here. Um, but the point is that both of them are involved, both the heart and the emotions. Then in verse 9, my whole being rejoices. Although actually you could possibly read this as an organ too. You could read this as my liver rejoices. You know, again, some of these don't really translate culturally, but again, perhaps the liver is another of these seats of emotions. It's David's guts. You know, David's guts are rejoicing. And then finally, my flesh dwells in security. It's a very physical picture. It's not just David's soul that's rejoicing in God, that's trusting in God, but even his very flesh is trusting in God. The picture that emerges here is that David's whole being unites to set the Lord always before me, as he puts it in verse 8. Both his mind and his embodied emotions are engaged and focused on rejoicing in God. And this joy is both spiritual, but also very physical. It involves both body and soul. Not only does God give him counsel, as he acknowledges at the beginning of verse 7, but that counsel he's received from God has worked its way down into his whole body, and his mind and his emotions have been trained to respond in a trusting joy towards God. What we learn in this life is that God's plan um, for us and our, our being made holy involves a renewal of our whole humanity, body and soul, mind, and emotions. I think this is a challenging truth because we're often tempted to reduce God's call to less than that, maybe depending on what your particular strengths and weaknesses are. For instance, we could have a deeds-only a deeds Christianity where our entire focus is on doing the right thing, following God's rules, but we miss out on the importance of what's going on in our hearts. That, that's a possibility. Or we could have a feelings-only Christianity where we're focused entirely on our emotions about God, but we neglect knowing and obeying Him. Then there's words-only Christianity, where it's all about our head knowledge, uh, getting down all those fancy theological terms, so maybe you can explain what the difference between justification and sanctification is. Perhaps if you're very, very intelligent, you even know what the word eschatology means. Um, but, though you have the right answer to all the questions, you neglect the impact this truth is supposed to have upon your emotions and your actions. 
That's also a possibility, to keep our theology just up here in our heads and just with the words we say and not have it permeate our whole being. And even if we just zoom in on the emotions, it's, it's a pretty challenging passage. Uh, there's a lot of diversity in our emotional experience, but I think one thing we pretty much all have in common, we're all emotionally messed up, aren't we? I mean, have you experienced that in your own life, in the lives of people you know? This can look a lot of different ways for different people. Uh, maybe you have very strong emotions that seem out of control, an anger that smolders continuously, or uh, a grief that consumes you, or unchecked lusts. Maybe your problem is not having emotions or feeling like an emotional blank. You can sit in church and hear about God's love, but just feel totally unmoved, like it doesn't mean anything to you. Personally, I'm more on the side of having trouble getting in touch with my emotions. Uh, I'm not the most naturally empathetic person. Uh, I really admire people who are, who just respond to people very, very compassionately and lovingly because it's just not, it's not, it's not my natural strength. Um, and I often worry that I'm not feeling what I ought to feel or what's appropriate to the situation. Sometimes the wonders of theology um, feel like something I learned a long time ago that I can kind of hold at a distance and understand, but without feeling the joy and wonder I ought to. And emotions are also difficult because it, we can't just flip a switch and fix them most of the time. Sometimes I think Christians talk like that. Just rejoice in the Lord. And we are commanded to rejoice in the Lord, but it's not that easy, is it? Many Christians have lifelong struggles with anxiety or depression, um, and these struggles can have a physical component, uh, making them very difficult to change. And many negative emotional patterns we learned when we were very small children. They become very deeply ingrained in us. Uh, chances are that many of the ways you react emotionally to God or to other people are things you learned as small children and have carried your whole life. That all makes it very challenging to talk about changing our emotions. It's not going to be a simple, easy thing in most cases. It's probably going to be a struggle, like so much of our fight with sin. But the Bible does give us hope for this struggle. Our emotions just like the rest of us, is being remade in the image of Christ. And it's Jesus who's the perfect picture of this, isn't it? Um, one of the things I love that you see in the Gospels over and over again is Jesus' compassion. For instance, Matthew 9.36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. The Greek word here is another of these very physical words. This is an emotional response This is for Jesus. Jesus doesn't just believe the right things about God in his mind. He does do that. He doesn't just follow God's rules, although he does do that, but he also displays God's heart all the way down to the physical level, not just Jesus' loftiest thoughts, but also his gut reactions display God's love. When Jesus sees suffering, his body instantly responds with compassion. I really love the King James Version's very literal translation of Philippians 1.8, where Paul says, I long after you all in the bowels of Christ. I don't know why they changed that in modern, modern translations. I mean, it's a metaphor, but um, uh, Paul doesn't just imitate the mind of Christ. He also imitates the bowels of Christ, where, of course, the bowels 
are the seat of the emotions. Paul seeks to emulate the fact that Jesus has godly guts. Well, we love because he first loved us, don't we? Our progress might be slow, uh, and we're going to struggle a lot with our emotions in our Christian walk, but the more deeply we learn about Christ, as God teaches us more and more about how much we need him, helps us learn more and more about how he loves us, our emotions will change. If you're struggling with your emotions this evening, there might not be a simple and easy solution, but there is a profound one. It's what David says in verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Set Christ before you. Think on Christ. Meditate on Christ. The more clearly you come to see Jesus' love and compassion, the more you will be transformed to become like him. So that's our second point. Because God is our good, we ought to rejoice in him with our whole being, mind, body, and emotions. Third point. Since God is David's good, he does not fear the grave. Look at verses 10 to 11. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and your right hand are pleasures forevermore. These verses actually help warn us against a misunderstanding of the first point. Uh, if God is our only good, does that mean we shouldn't care about physical needs? It might sound extra holy to say that, but I think it would be a false holiness. Uh, those who hold God as their ultimate good will gratefully receive the physical gifts that he gives to us and eat our daily bread with thanksgiving to him. And so David, he's not shy at all about asking God in the very first verse of this psalm, preserve me. That's precisely the trust he's been expressing. It's that when God on his right hand, he will not be moved. In other words, since God is his good, he happily rejoices in all the good things that God gives. And so David ends the psalm with this celebration of God's gift of life, with this expression of his faith that God will deliver him even from death. God will keep him from Sheol, that's uh, the place of the dead, where the dead go. If you were paying attention in the New Testament reading, uh, Peter and the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament translates it Hades to explain to a Greek audience this is the place where the dead are, the underworld. Um, God is going to keep David's soul from Sheol. Um, and uh, he's not going to fall into the corruption of the grave. Instead, God is going to lead him on the path of life into the everlasting pleasures of his presence. Now, what kind of faith is David expressing here precisely? Uh, some have seen in these words uh, as addressing just a particular situation, an expression of faith that God would deliver David from the threat of death in this particular predicament, whether that's soul seeking his life or something like that, but, but not necessarily a promise that David will never die. Maybe we could also see in here a hint of a hope that after David's death, his soul might not linger in the realm of uh, the unhappy dead, but might be kept in God's presence. Um, there's, there's not a lot of very clear teaching. There are some very clear teachings about the resurrection of the dead, um, but there are some unclear hints of, of a hope of uh, being with God after death, even in the early portions of the Old Testament. Whatever we think David's faith is here, 
We certainly can't read these words, though, in the strongest sense, as if God will never let David die. Like Peter points out, while God did keep David safe from his enemies throughout his life, David did still die eventually. And when he died, he stayed dead. Death mastered David as it does all of us, and David remains in death's power to this day. But we learn in the New Testament that these words of faith on David's part are also a prophecy which waits for David's greater son, Jesus, the only one who can take them up with all their force. As Peter says in Acts 2, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. You know, Peter's making the point. How, is this verse, how can this verse really be about David when David does die? He says David is a prophet, who's, uh, uh, and knowing that God's given this oath of a future son, David looks forward and speaks about the resurrection of Christ. It's Jesus who is not abandoned to Hades, who, does not see his flesh, who his flesh does not see corruption. David's faith is fulfilled in Christ's resurrection. On the cross, Jesus allows himself to fall into the power of death, but in dying, Jesus triumphs over death. And in his resurrection, death is defeated once and for all. For all those in Christ as well, the sting of death is now gone. We no longer stand before God under the condemnation of eternal death. But we are assured in Christ's resurrection that just as surely as Jesus was accepted by God and given new life, we will also be cleansed from our sin and given new life in Christ. And that means paradoxically that if we give up on our chasing of earthly goods and choose God as our good, then it turns out we'll actually get a physical reward anyway. What does the Bible say? Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or uh, the other passage in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If God is our ultimate good then our good is eternal and we have a hope of an eternal joy in his presence in physical resurrected bodies. But there's this paradox. In order for us to get that, we have to lose our lives and put the kingdom of God first. Well, isn't Jesus the best picture of this? Right? What clearer picture of this could there be than his resurrection? First, Jesus has to lose his life. He must walk that path to death abandoned by his friends, bearing the wrath of his father and the scorn of the world. And yet, it's precisely in choosing this path of weakness and death that he becomes worthy of resurrection into incorruptible life and becomes the first fruits of a whole new creation. Jesus chose God as his good, even though that path led through the agony of the cross. When Satan meets Jesus in the wilderness, he's, he's trying to offer him all of these shortcuts, isn't he? He says, yeah, you can just make bread. What does Jesus say? Man's bread, man doesn't live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan's trying to get Jesus to choose the good thing while bypassing God's plan, but Jesus will have none of it. Satan tries to get Jesus to receive his messianic glory without going through the cross by just proving his identity by jumping from the temple and being caught by angels. Satan tries to get Jesus to accept the kingdoms of the world 
this power, which would be a good thing. We want Jesus to rule the world. He's a just and righteous judge. But Satan offers it to Jesus, not in God's way. A shortcut that avoids the cross. But Jesus doesn't buy it. Rather, rather he chooses to receive these good things in God's way by walking the path of suffering God has appointed for him. And in Jesus' perseverance in choosing God, we were all saved. For all those times that we turned aside and chose something less than God, Jesus obeyed perfectly and died the death that our sins deserve. Let me ask you, is this a truth that you need to hear tonight? Where do you feel the power of death in your life tonight? Perhaps it's that you feel powerless and dead in your sin. Or do you feel the power of death in your physical frailty and sickness? Or is it in grief over the loss of loved ones? If you know the power of death tonight, the good news is that Jesus has defeated death once and for all at the cross. God did not let his Holy One see corruption. Jesus conquered death and sin through his perfect holiness. And he didn't just conquer them for himself either. He conquered them for you too. If you are in Christ, you have the hope of a day when death will finally be done away with, when its power over your life will be no more. One day we will all be like Jesus, and we will dwell where he is. This promise in this psalm that's spoken over Christ, he will not let his Holy One see corruption, it's spoken over you too in Christ. God has promised it, and he will fulfill it. We don't have that fulfillment yet, do we? We're still called to persevere in this veil of tears. But in Christ, we have a sure hope. God has made known to us the path of life, and we long for a day when we will finally be in his presence, perfectly and fully sanctified with pure hearts and new resurrection bodies then we will truly know the depth of his promise. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we long for that day when Christ will be revealed, when everything will finally be put under his feet, and death will be destroyed, and we will be released from its power. Lord, I ask that uh, you would be with us as we go out into the world, that you would help us to persevere, help us to choose you above the other good things that tempt us away from you. Help us to see the beauty of Jesus and who he is. And as much as we fail, as much as we sin, help us to see the grace given to us that we have triumphed in Jesus' victory that, in his, that he has triumphed in our place, and we are now crowned with his crown, and not when we've earned ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for this glorious grace given to us in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.